Hi, I'm Tracy Camilleri. Welcome to our second edition of podcasts in our Ghost Light series. In these dark times, our focus shifts to new beginnings. If the first step is the hardest in any new endeavor, how do you muster the courage, the energy and resolution to take it? We'll be talking to a variety of fascinating people, reflecting on how to begin. Our first guest is the inspirational entrepreneur, Dr. Yog Patel. She stepped out of a steady government job into being the CEO of Blue Bear Systems, making unmanned autonomous vehicles or drones to you and me. I'm delighted to welcome Yog Patel. I met Yog a year or two ago. Yog is an entrepreneur and she's a pioneer in the autonomy and unmanned systems and drones. Yoke also recently won the Asian Woman of Achievements, Woman of the Future Entrepreneur Award in London. And Yoke, you've described yourself many times as a techie at heart. But my first question is, where did you get the Blue Bear name from? <laughs> so good morning, Sam. Blue Bear. It was really a name chosen to stand out in what can be quite a dull engineering world. And in very many ways, a human name. And Blue Bear came simply from a blue bear from a young daughter. It's as simple as that. Well, that's a fantastic sort of segue to my first question, really, is that our leaders are very interested in in beginnings. So how to begin new things. My first question is, how did you summon up the courage to leave working for the government? Where did the spark come from to start your own organization? I was very lucky in that I had an awful lot of opportunity in the government labs to see across the nation and see how that operated. I guess I became a little bit worried that as a nation, we weren't moving fast enough and wanted to then change the status quo. I also have to say, I didn't start Blue Bear, the original company. I joined an initiative that was started by a wonderful chap called Dr. Phil Smith. He was an inspirational leader. He had set up the company at the turn of the century with a view to, again, making a change. I joined the company when there were five strong and realized that actually we had the potential to change the status quo in the UK and accelerate the delivery of innovation and do great things unbounded. I mean, this idea of sort of being able to take an idea and imagine your business, being able to have the really significant change that is so close to your heart, where's the root of that? (laughs) I think it starts with an imperative to see what could be fixed. You know, here we are, we're a nation full of inventors. We have an excellent government that supports our innovation, yet we don't always get our innovation through to products and creating our domestic growth. It was simply that realisation that we had the potential to create something that would create new industry and leave a legacy behind. And once you realise that actually that's within reach, the rest is just setting out a path in front of you that will do that and carving out a niche, a potential successful route to the end goal and keep chipping away at that until you get to it. But it is a long-term thing. It's not something that happens overnight and it's not something that you're going to achieve in flashbang growth. 
over three years or five years, it's a 20-year journey. And you need to be setting out on day one with the intent to make change slowly but determinedly. And I love this idea that it's a kind of long-term vision. And I know that we've had a number of conversations about how important it is to be really human at the center of the work that you do and to create this environment that allows for the warmth and this kind of familial sort of idea. And in contrast to being a really techie, a company that focuses on producing sort of technical solutions, how do those two things marry up? Well, I think easily in many ways, especially when you've got a hard thing to do, the best foundation that you can lay is that solid human-based foundation because money may come and go, opportunities may come and go, but actually it's the humans within an enterprise that provide the longevity, that provide the vision and provide the drive. People buy off people ultimately. People don't buy off corporates or don't really buy off organizations. We're constantly transacting. So for me, it was important that we set a very human and people-based environment and to grow this company slowly so that we had behaviors type mentalities and no matter what happened and whether we had a process that you could write down on paper or not it was actually the thing that we're doing every day and living and breathing every day that propelled the company forward that humanness is actually quite easy to achieve. It's not difficult. We do it in our personal lives all the time. As children, when we brought up, we witness this happening. We witness how nurturing environments can yield massive benefits. And so doing this in the work environment is actually quite straightforward in many ways, simpler. How do we mix the two? Well, at the end of the day, we are all humans. Yes, we do live in a very high-tech world. But and one of the key things that we have to get right when we produce technology is how does that technology interact with humans? It's great being engineers and it's great coming up with engineering solutions, but really we've got to be able to create technology that works for humans. And we as humans, we have been creating technology since the dawn of time. Our opposable thumbs are the real offenders here. And we've constantly created tools that help us live differently. So here we are in an age where we have an awful lot of automation. In my industry, it's all about drones, automation, letting the human operator make decisions and intervene if necessary. So that human interaction has to be real and achievable. And successful products really come from good engineering coupled with good emotional design. So letting, again, the human elements coming into tech is so important for successful delivery of the next generation tools for mankind. Yogi, you've said so many really important things in that response. I'm struck by two things. One is taking a longer term view, especially in relation to technology and, of course, how we imagine things will look in the next 20 years is a very difficult process, especially if it is to serve people rather than to be distracting or a negative force. And I'm wondering, how do you put yourself 20 years ahead? Ah, okay. <laughs> so how do you put yourself 20 years ahead? You cannot always imagine what's going to happen in 20 years, but you can imagine what's going to happen within the next five and what's likely to happen in the next 10. And the rest you feel your way through. 
And I'm going to quote Apple as an example here. Now, Apple had an intent of very, very many years ago to put a PC on everybody's desk. That was their motivation. Uh, in 2001, very many years after, 20-odd years after they put that mission statement out, we were all holding iPods in our hands, listening to music. The first time we didn't have to carry CDs around, and here we had mobile music with us. Look where we are now. It's to what we do with dial-up music and how quickly we can download and how much the environment has changed. Could Apple have imagined that when they set off on their journey? Well, I don't know the answer to that question, but I suspect a lot of their evolution was formed by a constant exploration of what the market needed and constant matching of that with what the technology could push out. So there really is a push-pull that's going on all the time with technology push and market pull. So you've got to keep a very close eye on what the world really wants and make sure that you're delivering it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a brilliant example. I mean, we can all relate to that sort of excitement of seeing the technology progress. The second comment that you made that really struck me is a sort of human-centered design in technology. And I'm curious, you know, what are some of the principles you apply to that? What would you do to put humans at the center of the design? I'd say, first of all, make no assumptions. There's many types of people that come together when you produce a successful product. I always talk about the hard engineering, the tech, what's possible with the tech. Make no assumptions, though, that humans want the best tech. What they may want, actually, is to trade the best tech for a more interactive interface. They may not want the complexity of that technology. They may want much simpler articles to play with before they go deep into the very complicated things that they may be able to provide. So the golden rule is really engage with the human very early on at the very first stage of thinking about how you may produce that product. It's not always possible because the product you have to have what we call a minimum viable product to put in front of the end user before they can see what they like or don't like. So for us as a company, what we have set up over the last 20 years is a means of rapidly engaging with the end user and doing this technology push and market pull all the time using digital environments, virtual worlds, and setting up an ecosystem where we don't talk about equipment, but we talk about capability. What does the human end user really want as a capability rather than the equipment that is a means to an end? Talking about capability and the outcomes rather than the equipment just puts a different layer on your conversations from the very beginning. And it's immediately telling the human end users that they are going to be involved in your product development straight away. You use the word conversation. And what struck me when we worked together a little bit at the business school is that, of course, what you do brilliantly is ask fantastic questions. And you seem genuinely curious in the human story. And I'm wondering, is that something you've developed over time? Have you always been able to do that? I think as a child, I spent a lot of time observing. I was one of seven children and I was the middle child and the middle child always stays silent. So I had the opportunity to observe lots of lives running out in the family. But I also came from a large extended family. So I had a lot of people to observe. And I was constantly trying to figure out 
why is this happening? What's happening in people's minds to allow them to do what they do? But why do they operate as they do? So in my mind, I was constantly figuring out how the world was operating around me. And as I went through my career, I realized after a while, I think there was a period where I thought, no, that's not how the work world works. From the age of about 28 onwards, I realized, actually, no, we go back to being humans who need to understand the people that we are working with so that we can work better with them. So what makes them tick? What makes them really happy? Why are they really wanting to do this work? You know, what is it that we need to architect around people so that they can excel rather than assume that everybody wants the same thing? We all need something different. We're all driven by slightly different things. And it's always important to get under the skin of that because if you can make people happy, then you can make anything. It's simple. Well, first of all, I love your idea of the middle child and that very specific gift that middle children have of being able to sort of look up and look down at siblings. And I just wonder, Yogi, you're very precise about saying at 28, you made the shift. Can you remember what happened or a series of things that might have happened to turn you into this direction? So I was halfway through my PhD and there were a lot of things that were going right and there were a lot of things that were going wrong. And when I sat and looked at what was going wrong, it was actually all the human interaction and what I might call politics with a small p was getting in the way. And I thought, well, how do I work around this? How do I not fight this, but how do I work with this? And I realized it was actually all about people. It was people that was driving the way the events were unfolding around me. So I had to learn fast. I had to learn fast how to engage and what to dodge and how to undo what might be coming my way in a nice way. And and did you find that you stepped more into yourself at that moment? There was a lot more introspection that was going on because I had spent an awful lot of my life observing and putting together a model of the world as I saw it so I could understand what was happening in there. What I had to do then was actually look at myself an awful lot more and say, well, how do I work? What's important to me? And how am I going to use what's important to me to drive what I do next? You begin to better understand what your values are as an individual, especially when you come under strife, what levers you use in your life or your personality to transact with the world. So I began to look at myself far more carefully and work out what mattered to me and what didn't. And you think, well, 28, surely you must have sorted that at the age of 18 or 21. But no, it took me a very long time. And I would say I still continue to learn. Actually, as we grow, we change. And I'm constantly learning about what the next thing is and how I may approach it. I think 28, by the way, sounds sort of a wonderful age to suddenly sort of recognize what really matters to you. And of course, that's the moment in which, you know, everything changes because, of course, you line up your life to something that seems more important and more purpose driven. You, of course, are a female entrepreneur. You're leading a highly technical business. What sort of the systems or structures that you've put in place that you think might be different because you're a woman and because you've experienced a sort of different way of being in the world? So firstly, Sam, I don't know whether I am different or we're running Bluebird differently because I'm a female. I'll say that straight away. I I don't know that that is the reason why we operate 
the way that we do. But I will say that I do operate the company in a way that allows us to create an ecosystem where everybody feels that they can contribute and contribute equally. So I've got a very simple way of running the company. It involves mantras, some of my mantras, and I expose these when I interview people. I will expose these throughout the delivery of tactical and strategic work within the company. These mantras are things like people buy off people. Just make sure that we're building relationships rather than business transactions. My second mantra would be, there are no princes or paupers. We're all kings. What that means is no matter how much structure that you have in the company, everybody has an ability to talk to everybody else and everybody has a valid view. And anybody in the company can take aside anybody else and have a conversation without there needing to be a structure or or knocking on lots of doors. And that's all about leveraging influence and input from everybody. What else is there? Deal with truth. You solve nothing if you don't deal with truth. Quite often, I'd say work organisations become dysfunctional because you have to hide things. You've made mistakes. But actually, we all make mistakes. It doesn't matter in which part of the organisation. Everybody makes mistakes. And you've got to be able to let people declare their mistakes really quickly and then just move on rather than have the burden, any person in the company have the burden of a mistake. So deal with truth. Make mistakes. You make nothing if you make no mistakes. So they're simple sayings, but actually they're quite powerful and they very easily communicate your ethos, your values, and what's important to you. None of these are talking about efficiency or productivity or they're not hard to understand concepts. The sort of idea of being really clear about the principles that guide you, which you've put in your mantras, is a very powerful way of leading. I'm just curious about truth to power, because even though we sometimes talk about not having a hierarchy, it still exists in people's minds. How do you make sure that people feel that they are able to tell you the truth as the leader of the company? So it's important for leaders to be visible be accessible, communicate. So a simple thing that leaders can do when they walk into the office is rather than scuttle off to their office is just say hello to everybody. As you walk in, look towards somebody, say hello, how are you? Take time to go and have coffee where everybody else has coffee. I do walk arounds. I just do walk arounds around the company just to see what's happening and then stop people and just ask. And, you know, everybody loves a conversation and I'm not interfering. And it brings back that communication. Ask simple questions. Are you happy with what you're doing? You know, what have you been up to? And you'd be surprised what people will tell you and what you'll learn. (laughs) So those are very simple things. What else can one do? I think explicitly say to them, you know, if you ask for my time, I will make sure that you get it within the day. You know, I will make sure I'll set aside five minutes, at least five minutes to talk to you if you want to have a discussion. So be very accessible to your team. And that five minutes might be hard to find, but by golly, you've got to find it. And it may be not face-to-face at the end of the day, but you have got to find it. You know, of course, you are somebody who is very sort of accessible in terms of your warmth. I mean, you're very smiley, which is what is so lovely about you. People feel very open to share. 
but of course, not everyone has that sort of outgoing, engaging personality. Some people might feel it might feel a bit fake. And I'm just wondering if in your own experience, you've actually learned how to get better at that. Or that's just something that you were born with? Well, I don't know. I was always a very happy child. I'll say that now. And I do recall my mom saying to me when I was younger, don't keep smiling. People think you're simple. (laughs) Um, Actually, so I got a real phobia about smiling when I was younger. I think the only thing that's happened is I realized I don't need to be anybody other than myself work. So I don't need to put on a false persona to be at work or anywhere else, actually. It was just too hard to be somebody else at work. So the simpler thing for me to be is just who I am. And when you are who you are, everything becomes a lot easier. And actually, people that you're transacting with see that. People can always see whether it's the real you that they're working with or a work front, let's say. And the simplest thing that you can be at work is you. Actually, being you is fine. Being you is more than fine. It's it's what you should be. Yeah, and of course, Jörg, in the COVID pandemic, when everybody's been working from home, I mean, one of the sort of brighter aspects, I guess, of the working from home phenomena and doing everything over Zoom is that we've had small peaks into people's lives. Yes. <laughs> you know, I can see the video. I can see that you've got lovely artwork on your walls. I mean, it just gives me a tiny glimpse into your life that I otherwise would not have had. And it has created this kind of sense of intimacy that normally wouldn't be there. Absolutely. And that's so important. You know, talking not just about work, but what have you done? I think COVID-19 has been a real eye opener for the whole industry, really, to say, how should we balance our work home life? This idea that we need to be tied to our desks and not allow any home life in has been thrown out the window really you know i'll have senior guys from large companies talking to me and say excuse me i've just got to put my two-year-old to bed and i say isn't that great this is what real life is about it's not just all about work and that's great to hear but what is great is that he had the courage to say that rather than make some reason that he had to go just say no i'm putting my little boy to bed it's made a huge difference hasn't it it has made a huge difference. And I made an early decision, actually, with the rest of the directors to say, I can't think of a better way for our team to be than the thought that they are spending more time with their families and their loved ones and still working. I can't think that this could be a bad way of executing business. It's actually a good way if we can trade that 45 minute journey into work both ways and create an hour and a half where you can sit down with your wife and have a cup of tea, or you can play that game with your youngsters that they always feel that they can't ask because mummy or daddy is too busy. I think that's great. That's that's precious, precious time while they're growing up. Yeah, I agree. And, and you've articulated it so beautifully that it's a gift in a sense, isn't it? Two more serious things, not that COVID is not serious, of course it is, but I'm now thinking about the technology and some of the really concerning aspects of what is happening from a technology perspective led by the social media. What are your thoughts about as we look forward? How can we be more responsible about both the technology development and usage? I think ethics 
and ethos and our values always come into play when we are developing technology. And just as I think there were reactions in the early days when we began to do things like take the human operator out of trains, there was concern. Yet today, when we used to go on holidays on aircraft, when we stepped off, we'd more often than not walk onto a plane that is completely unmanned. We always, as a organization as a society take care to ensure first of all safety and secondly that we are looking after what i would call the societal values the broader societal values so as humans we are not going to let technology rule us we are not going to be unethical in how we use that technology If you look at the government white papers, how they will embrace things like artificial intelligence or autonomy, it's very, very considered. These things aren't going to run away and begin to rule the world. That isn't possible. If you look at the way that software is evolving, it's within our control, human control, to not allow that to happen. And to be quite frank, the technology is not there. But we will carry on using technology at its best. So what are we looking at? Here we are in the world of autonomy and drones and AI. We're looking at how blue light services can be changed, how you can get the farmer who we are a farming nation who might not have the time in the day to go look at all of his crops and do the rounds in his vehicle. We're using drones to allow him to sit at the breakfast table and look at his crops. We're using drones to precision fertilisation so we're not putting too many chemicals into our soils. And that's then have a huge impact on the cleanliness of our waters. We're looking at drones to look at pests and disease. So there's a lot of benefits that are coming through and things that we weren't able to do or can't do without the use of this type of technology new sensors, new algorithms that are coming out that allow us to react far more quickly to disasters, be it in your food chain or be it in flooding or be it in any disaster. So lots and lots of benefits to come from this sort of tech. We just haven't got our arms around all of what the technology can provide, but we are as sure as hell helping to move that technology along to the right place with the right players. Gosh, Yoga, I mean, you filled me with confidence and optimism. At times, I can be a tiny bit dystopian when I think about the future of tech. And I think certainly this conversation has made me feel like if people like yourself are making these decisions, I will rest a little bit easier this evening. (laughs) because it has worried me a lot. (laughs) So, Yog, we've just about run out of time, but I have one last question to you that perhaps would be a gift for our listeners. And the question is, what wisdom or tiny bit of advice would you give to our leaders who are listening to this program that you've perhaps learned over your years running your own business and being an entrepreneur? So there are two sayings that have stood behind me when I am confused or I am battling or I wish to just achieve something. And I would like to share these. And they are argue for your limitations and they shall be yours. 
This is really saying no matter what the rules are, there's always wiggle room. Go get. The second one is listen to your conscience. It's a measure of your honesty with yourself. And both of those quotes are from a beautiful book, Jonathan Livingston Siegel by Bach. It's a beautiful, beautiful, simple book. And if nothing else, I think I would recommend that readers read that book and take whatever message that they wish to derive from it, because it's a very thin book, very simple, but there's some lovely messages in there. Jörg, I have to say this has been one of the most joyful and interesting conversations I've had. you leading an amazing organization. You've applied your own wisdom, authenticity to your leadership. And I thank you very much for sharing your story with the listeners of this podcast. Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. No, thank you. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Ghost Lights, a podcast by Thompson Harrison. Thompson Harrison is a leadership and organization development consulting business where we bring experience, expertise, and a uniquely creative approach to offer highly specialized leadership and organization development consultancy. Thompson Harrison is skilled at designing successful ways for leaders to embrace new ideas and remain dynamic. We work with senior leaders and their teams to transform their organizations in response to a fluid context and a changing set of stakeholder expectations. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.